Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, lucky episode 13, Joseph Campbell, Eat Your Heart Out, where we will be looking at chapters 28 and 29 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of The Call to Adventure. If you're new here, we would suggest you go back to episode 3, start there, listen back to here, and then listen to 1 and 2. But if you insist on starting on episode 13 totally your prerogative, we have a short explanation of how we structure things on this podcast. Each week we will examine a section of The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figure out what we can take from the text and apply it to our real lives. After that, we'll take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text and see what we can learn from them. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. At the end of the podcast, we'll wrap up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. So before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, our discussions naturally assume that you have either A, read The Name of the Wind, The Wise Man's Fear, and the short stories and novellas associated with the Kingkiller Chronicle. Or, you really just don't give a shirt about spoilers. Also, please be kind to us, be kind to the community, and be kind to the authors that you love. And now, we come to the time where we do our 30-second... Nope, that says 30-second. I do not do a 30-second recap. I do a 45-second recap. That is what I do, and that is what I will do. Okay, if you insist on bowling with the bumpers up. I do. It's more fun that way. Fine. I'll switch to 45 seconds for my next one. Well, then you'd probably have to eat less cherries. Yeah. More fun for you. Less fun for the rest of us. (laughs) All right, let me get a stopwatch here. I'm ready if you are. I'm ready. In three, two, one... Quoth wakes up late, runs to the half-mast, and catches the last half of Scarby's story, which seems to be a continuation of Lanray and to contradict Trappist's story of Telu. Midway through, the storyteller is interrupted by a priest. Almost all the children leave, and the priest has church strongmen beat up Scarby. Scarby has a fly-you-fools moment, calling Quoth by name, and Quoth hides on the rooftops. Quoth then takes a one-day crash course in rhetoric and logic and becomes great at magic again. 29 seconds. I could have done yours. You could have. I didn't. Because I am not an idiot. (laughs) That's a sucker hole. You can totally do 30 seconds next time. This was a very short section. Very, very short section. Very, very short section. It could have gone into episode 12 and fit just fine, but episode 12 was very dense. It seems like it could continue on... But the next chapters that we're going to go over are more of Quoth having a bit of a madcap adventure through the city of Tarbian, and it just didn't seem to fit. Now, if you're familiar at all with 
Joseph Campbell, and the Hero of a Thousand Faces, you'll know that the hero's journey, which is a literary device or construct, it's something that applies to a lot of movies. Think Star Wars. It can apply to video games. Think Journey. And it can be loosely applied to almost all fantasy novels and also to other less heroic stories. But there's, generally speaking, a call to adventure, which I would actually argue in Quoth's story, the original call to adventure for him was when Abanthi was talking to Quoth's parents and mentioned the university. Because the university is this big destination. And I would say that Quoth gets several different calls to adventure throughout the course of The Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear. The call to adventure represents a chance to go outside the normal day-to-day life, to do something brand new. And he experiences it when he first hears about the university, and then he kind of rejects that call for a little bit while he's in Tarbian, especially. It seems like the rejection of the call was kind of forced on him, though. In this case, he didn't willingly choose not to go to the university. His mind shut down, and he's alone, and he has what he thinks is no options, which we will discover isn't actually true. He just chose the path that was easiest for him to follow at the time. He was also not in a position to do anything other than the path of least resistance at that point, having just endured some horrible trauma. So when we say rejection in this case, it's a very soft rejection. He basically put himself onto a train and took the train to its destination. Which in this case has landed at Scarpy. Yeah, it landed him at Scarpy's story time and gave him some new options and opened up some parts of his brain that had been dormant. Quoth is a character who is phenomenally gifted in many different regards as a storyteller and actor and musician. And in this section in Tarbian, most of those gifts have essentially been put away. He has not been able to use them. He's not been able to enjoy them. He's not been able to share them. And with Scarpy... Scarpy seems a little bit like a catalyst. Yes. Scarpy has basically said, hey, look over there. You got something, kid. Scarpy seems like one of the first people that's recognized Quoth for what he can do. Which is odd given their very limited amount of interaction. There's a bit at the end of this chapter where Scarpy actually calls Quoth by name and tells him to go back to his hiding place on the roof despite never having been told Quoth's name and not knowing where Quoth lives. Supposedly not knowing where Quoth lives. Quoth hasn't told him any of this information anyway. That we've seen. Which... That's pretty suspicious, right? It seems like a detail that adult Quoth would have said he told Scarpy, because adult Quoth's story is very detailed. Exactly. And it seems like the sort of thing that adult Quoth wants us to catch on to as well as he's telling this story. Well, Scarpy also, as we will see once we get there, I mean, it's only 10 pages, but 
Scarpy calls one of the priests by name as well. Airless, the guy who has the soot-colored beard. Which we will get to. We just need to go through and actually start at the beginning. A very good place to start. The very beginning couple of paragraphs of chapter 28 are kind of cinematic. I can see Kvothe running right before sunset. I can see the orange sky and the dirty city and his bare feet. So it has a very James Cameron panning the camera to the character's feet kind of vibe to it to me. And he bursts in to the half-mast, but somehow doesn't disturb the story. Quoth is very dramatic, so I think he always imagines things of greater drama than maybe they actually do in the wider world. He's a little extra. But when he gets in, we see Scarpy is in the middle of telling a continuation of Selatos and Lanray's story as Selatos, who's taken on sort of this odenic visage with only one eye that sees all, traded his eye for knowledge. He sees Selatos forming the organization that will become the Amir. And so at this point, Selatos answers to Aleph who is one of the great namers. We don't really know what exactly their relationship is. Although he says Lord. Could be a feudal Lord. It could be a religious Lord. We don't know enough about this story to have a clear understanding, especially since both overslept. Correct. The other interesting thing is that Telu shows up as well in here. At least somebody named Telu, but it's probably Telu. Yeah, and he seems to be a peer of Selatos, as opposed to a deity in his own right. In the way that really, really old stories can contradict one another, and in the same way that all of the stories of the Chandrian contradict one another, finding the true and accurate narrative thread through all of this is going to be hard. Yeah, we're piecing things together from what different people believe or have heard. Scarpy has his version of events. We have no clue of knowing whether it's in any way historical, but it certainly seems to speak to Kvothe. Now, Scarpy, with his mystical aura, has a lot of theories clouding around him. I think he's a yeti. <laughs> Because of the white hair all over his arms? Exactly. Okay. I think that's a new one. Would you like to go into some of the ones that <laughs> other people actually believe? Yeah, there are some who believe that he is somehow connected to the Amir, which is possible. There are some who believe that he has some connection to the Fae, perhaps to the Cathay. It almost feels like the calls to adventure figures in Kvothe's life may all have at least a little bit of that agent of the Cathay vibe. Well, I think Kvothe himself is an agent of the Cathay because the Cathay manages causality. He tips things into certain directions. He causes certain dominoes to fall in any given way. And so because of how the Cathay works, there's no way that people can't somehow be at least an indirect agent of the Cathay because the Cathay has set in motion chains of events way far out to put people on certain courses. 
And even if Scarpy is just some normal human who has never been to the Fae, who's never had any interactions with the Cathay, he's been introduced to a certain set of circumstances that brought him to the Half-Mast and put him into contact with Quoth just in time to tell the story of Lanray and Celitos. And just in time for Quoth to get to the university to attend the university that term. Very convenient. I'd really love to see that on an entrance essay. <laughs> well, you see, I was fated to go here to this college because of the machinations of a mysterious eldritch creature of the Fae. So you kind of have to let me in. That lives in the tree. Right. <laughs> and eats <laughs> butterflies so that they can't flap their wings and cause all sorts of chaos across the globe. I also enjoy lots of community service. <laughs> and... I want to focus on being a whole person. <laughs> and I think that a university education is the best way for that to happen. Anyway, back to the story within the story. <laughs> so then we're introduced to Celatos's A-team, so to speak. Or Amir team, as the case may be. Oh, puns. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da. No, no copyright infringements. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so imagine that I was just humming the tune to the A-team. He introduces these figures who all essentially swear this oath of vengeance on Lanray and the Chandrian. And though Aleph is not exactly pleased by this, he doesn't really want them to. He still gives his blessing to them. He turns them into what seems like angels. Yeah, they have that sort of angel vengeance vibe to them. Almost angels in the way that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are angels in Dogma. They swear that they're going to do what they do for the greater good. The greater good. Which brings to mind Hot Fuzz. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go on from that, there is a thing I would like to revisit from back when Quoth, or Cote, admits to being Quoth. A bit where Chronicler is talking about all of the things that Quoth is famous for. There is a story of how Quoth had gone looking for his heart's desire, had to trick a demon to get it, but once it rested in his hand, he was forced to fight an angel to keep it. Mm. Now, that demon could be the Cathay. Could be. Anyway. There's something kind of terrifying about these people who are so devoted to the greater good and are willing to mete out preemptive justice, so to speak. There's something about that that is a little Orwellian. Or anti-Orwellian. Yeah, as the case may be. It calls to mind Minority Report, where you have essentially pre-crime prosecuted and punished before anything has even happened and the people that become the Amir based on some of the stories that we'll later hear can be pretty terrifying and there's nothing more terrifying than people who will do anything for the greater good even if that anything seems pretty terrible in its own right right Celitos says my heart says to me I must try to stop these things before they are done that's pretty totalitarian right there. 
so you mentioned that this is anti-Orwellian because Orwell himself was famously anti-totalitarian. People oftentimes describe things that are reminiscent of 1984 as Orwellian, as in they're out of Orwell's imagination, even though Orwell himself was horrified at the prospect of such things coming into place. Also, I'm pedantic. Well, you did marry me, and I'm pretty pedantic myself, so I got no room to talk. <laughs> we later learn that the Duke of Gibeah, who is sort of this mass sadist, almost Dr. Mengele figure, was perhaps affiliated with the Amir through this whole the greater good notion. We've been introduced to the Duke of Gibeah briefly as a concept when Kvothe went down into Travis's basement and heard Tanny kind of making the grunty, moany noises. Like he was being tortured. Oh, he's not. No. The Amir, as I perceive them, are sort of these radical action consequentialist utilitarians. They would murder a baby to generate mild satisfaction in a troop of rabbits. So this isn't even like a kill baby Hitler. No. They would murder an innocent if they thought that it would produce a greater good outcome. I personally subscribe to the, I wouldn't kill baby Hitler, but there should be an evil baby orphanage. Oh yeah, you're going full Hank Green on this, I know. Yep. <laughs> but there's something kind of terrifying about that, because they're always performing this calculus with every action, and you just have to hope that your life is on the right end of that calculus. It's like the score of The Good Place. Kind of, yeah, except they're even more terrifying. <laughs> Is it kind of like throat spiders? Yeah, they would put throat spiders down a whole bunch of people if they thought that it would increase the aggregate happiness. That's disturbing. You can see sort of the often false dilemma that's presented to people. Will you torture this one person to get them to give up the location of a terrorist and let the terrorist do the thing? Or will you do what's necessary? Of course, this is a false dichotomy because turns out torture isn't going to actually get you what you're trying to accomplish. But if you're told that that's the only way, that it's what's, quote, necessary, people tend to fall into this consequentialist mindset and prevent it before it happens. This is people who want to see themselves as Jack Bauer from 24. And those people are not cool to be around. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Yeah, even Spock is kind of a bad utilitarian. So, we get to the point where Taylor is brought up again, and Scarpy says Taylor is the greatest of them all. And then he's interrupted by Taylor priests. They were just waiting for their cue. I mean, given the description of these guys, they probably were waiting outside just listening for someone to give them their line. The description given of any interruption was like chewing a grain of sand in a mouthful of bread. I can feel that. That's kind of a visceral, like, ugh. Yeah, even though the vast majority of that bread is just fine, that one grain, ugh. Uh -huh. It definitely kills the mood. So yeah, the Talon priests dramatically interrupt everything, and then they proceed to reveal themselves as a justice, as well as his minions. 
They proceed to kind of shake down the owner of the half-mast a little bit. I think that the owner of the half-mast is more intimidated without them having to do anything. I don't think they're purposefully trying to shake him down. But once he starts offering them things, they kind of play with him like a cat with a mouse. For them, it's, I think, probably less about any particular favors that they may extract from him and more about just the feeling of being powerful and having power over him. We get the sense that they kind of like being able to throw their weight around and do whatever they want and force people to bend to their will. Quoth mentions that the children trickled out and or started running out, except for three children who were foolish. Including himself. Sometimes Quoth has these interesting little flashes of self-awareness. They're both amusing and a little jarring, but not jarring out of the story, but more like, huh, he knows he's an idiot sometimes. Sometimes. Not always. And the priests bring in mercenaries and point them at Scarpy and have him bound up. There's a little detail about the instigator priest, who is also a justice. He's got these silver scales. And the church justice is painted as someone who is distinctly on the side of evil. He fits into the villain stereotype really easily. I mean, he's got like the soot-colored goatee, which soot, ash, ash, cinder... Yeah, we're meant to make that association. Sort of a sharp, knife-like face. So you glossed over it, but there are a lot of people who do believe that, if nothing else, that Erlis has something to do with, or is, Cinder. Which would possibly make Scarpy one of the Amir, or one of the other, what the... The Sith, the Singers. Or anyone else that might harm the Chandrian. And he certainly does seem to be in the know. He points out that Telu hates Erlis more than anybody, which is something that greatly offends Erlis's dignity. Which also implies that maybe Telu knows Erlis personally. When you have someone who is officiously abusing people's faith, that's one of the greatest insults to that particular faith possible. To the god of that faith. We look at an example like Trappist, who is a Telu worshiper. We don't know if he's actually a priest, but both speculates he might be or have been at one point. And you compare that to Erlis, and yeah, you can definitely see why Telu would... The Telu of Trappist's story would loathe Erlis. Because Erlis is arrogant, he is unkind, he's cruel even, and not bothering to hide it. And we get this all in the span of like a page and a half. We're told all we need to know that this guy is bad news, and yeah, we're justified in hating him. We've also been led to believe that Scarpy himself is an agent of good. He may or may not be an agent of good, but he is an agent of chaos in the sense that he upends the established order by telling kids these stories 
and setting Quoth on a path that's going to upend a lot of the established order as well. Scarpy, rather than being frightened by this exchange, frightened by being beaten or bound, seems to have that moment of, like, that grin, even if your teeth are bloody, and sees into Erlis's heart. Erlis says, God have mercy on you. And he says it in a cold and trembling voice. Scarpy got to him. Scarpy has the look of someone who has been arrested after they've already done exactly what they intended to do. He seems like he's accomplished his goal. They have an exchange, Scarpy and Erlis. Mercy on my soul? You don't know how funny that sounds coming from you. There is something more to this story than we are going to get in the next 500 pages, plus the length of The Wise Man's Fear, which is longer. (laughs) It'll be a couple thousand pages before we find out anything. (laughs) Hopefully this particular narrative thread gets wrapped up. There's something here, and it feels like Scarpy has knocked over the domino he set out to knock over, so it doesn't really matter what happens next to him as far as he's concerned. Though we know that at least at the time that Chronicler set out on his journey, that Scarpy was alive and well. And he also happened to push over some dominoes that pointed Chronicler right to Quoth. At least we can assume that. He seems to have anyway. So did you get the same fly you fools moment when Scarpy just looks at Quoth, or doesn't even look at Quoth, just says, Quoth, go up to the rooftops, which, I mean, that's the dumbest thing (laughs) because it's not like Quoth is the only one that hears this, is it? It would be like Gandalf on the bridge of Kaza, Doom, and Moria getting ready to fight the Balrog, turns and says, Fly, Frodo Baggins of the Shire, go back to the Shire where you're from, hide in the hole, in the cabinet, down by the bed, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's absurdly specific. He doesn't say this to any of the other two children that are there. By this point, the other two children have left, though. So now that we are on the absolutely secure, completely hidden hiding spot... Right. (laughs) Although, granted, there are many roofs in Tarbian, so... And I guess that the priests and the strongmen are particularly slow. And they seem more interested in exerting their will over the people in the bar. At least on Scarpy. So he's up... On the rooftops, click, click, click. That is not the sound that reindeer make. And something inside of him breaks. Everything floods back. Apparently everything floods back. It's as though the three years in Tarbian could just be slotted out of his memory. And he has perfect recollection of the six-week study course he learned from Abanthi on the ways of magic. And to be fair to Quoth, there are people like him that are autodidacts who can learn things really quickly and can teach themselves very efficiently. I mean, Eddie Van Halen can learn to play any musical instrument having picked it up once and can play any song on it once he's heard it. And here I am, I took piano for I don't know how long when I was a kid, and I cannot play it now very well at all. It's been a struggle trying to relearn it. 
But see, the difference between you and Eddie Van Halen is you can actually listen to music and enjoy it. And Eddie Van Halen hates listening to music. It's a good trade-off. Yeah. <laughs> Foth just kind of picks up the loot in his mind and remembers all the fingerings and everything. He spends a long time thinking of the Chandrian. He wants vengeance on the Chandrian. Adult Foth states that he understood that he was 15 and that vengeance is not worth it and that he couldn't possibly extrude vengeance on the Chandrian anyway, so why even try? At the same time, even if you don't want vengeance, you can still want to understand the motives and reasoning behind why what happened to his parents happened. Absolutely. But I can understand why he would want to understand the reasoning behind it. When a tragedy befalls people you care about, it's perfectly normal and understandable to want to make sense of that event, to understand the things that led to it, because it gives you a sense of control, even if it's illusory. It gives you the feeling that maybe you could avoid that happening in the future. And that motive, I think, will stick with Quoth. This is something that kind of drives him. Why he decides to go into the university archives and just Google Chandrian. Insofar as Googling exists. He remembers Haliax talking with Cinder. He remembers talk of the Amir and the Singers and the Sith. But as a kid, he was taught that the Amir haven't been around for at least 300 years. And that they were agents of the church. They were knights of the church. Yeah, they have sort of a Knights Templar iconography surrounding them where they are at once very powerful and overt and at the same time seemingly very covert. Quoth later speculates that the Amir have become sort of an Illuminati Freemasonry type secret society that pulls strings from behind the thrones and controls the directions of governments all to accomplish their ends. Scarpi's story implies that the Amir started with Celatos and Celatos and Lanry's story is a story beyond time long, long, long ago. Almost like they've always been around. It sounds like something right out of Foucault's Pendulum, where there are conspiracies within conspiracies that go all the way back to the dawning of civilization. There's an astute observation that quite obviously the Chandrian can't kill everyone they come in contact with, because if they did there would be no stories of the Chandrian to tell. Including that rhyme that every child has sung that tells about their signs. And here we have that call to adventure, just that sentence. There was only one place for me to go, of course. The university. Dun, dun, dun. Circling back to our own lives, there are millions of calls that we see every day if we're paying attention to them, if we're looking for them. They represent opportunities to take a risk and change something in our lives and in the world around us. These can happen in times when you don't have a job and you start looking for opportunities. They can happen when you're just going about your day-to-day -day routine and something seems different and you decide to follow that and see what it is. Follow down the rabbit hole. It could be when you hear of an injustice and decide to speak out on it, when you see any number of things that 
pull you out of your normal life. They're everywhere. And these are things that are challenges that you may or may not be equipped to handle. And you don't have to answer every one of these. Some of them force themselves into your life. Some of them are just opportunities that you could take. You can go your entire life trying to figure out all the what-ifs. If you had taken that opportunity or answered that call or done something different. What if I hadn't moved back to Seattle? What if you hadn't asked me to go to PAX? What if you hadn't agreed to play D&D with me? What if, God forbid, my old roommate that tried to make me less of a geek had succeeded? I don't think that's possible. But what if the dominoes hadn't fallen in the way that they did? Life would be completely different. Maybe better, maybe worse, but you can't really know. We don't have a way to view these other alternate worlds. All we can do is listen for calls and answer them when we feel we can or feel we must. To wrap up the story, we get another instance of the ledger. Every single thing that Kfoth owns and the one that is of any value past the 27 pennies. For three years, he has kept a book dry and safe. He pulls it out of the treated bit of canvas that he has been storing it in. And it's perfectly fine, and it even still smells like Ben's wagon. Sometimes a smell is so comforting, and it can bring back a flood of memory. It's a very immediate thing that goes over and beyond just the sense of sight or sound. Just goes straight to your brain. And it puts you back where you were when you first smelled it. The inscription says, Quoth, defend yourself well at the university. Make me proud. Remember your father's song. Which is interesting because he never heard all of his father's song. And we don't get to really hear any that song either. Just the preamble. Be wary of folly. He received this book before the Chandrian killed his parents. And then he proceeds to take a overnight course in rhetoric and logic and somehow remembers everything. Autodidact. I know. Again, I think if Quoth were alive today, he'd basically be Eddie Van Halen. Or think he was. I think of all of the little bits and holes that you could poke in this story, that's probably one that I'd have at least wanted as a nitpicky person to have some instances where Quoth accidentally did some magic, have some instances where we can see that he didn't completely lose everything about him and that three years of his life weren't completely devoid of everything he learned. Makes sense. So yeah, that's both hearing the call, and I mean really hearing it for the first time, and deciding to actually do something about it. Next week it'll play like a heist film. But for now, we move on to our Phronimos. And it's my turn this week. Really, there aren't a whole lot of options. Really, you've just got Scarpy. So I've picked Scarpy. What? There's the kids that all left. There's the kids that didn't leave, including Quoth, and Quoth is never our Phronimos. 
the innkeeper. Who is not a Fernemos. And the priests and mercenaries who are not Fernemoses either. No, because why would you want to live up to that legacy? So that leaves us with Scarpy. And Scarpy actually has some very useful traits that I think are worth considering. First of all, one thing that we know about Scarpy is that he is supremely collected. When you look at the confrontation between him and the Justice Erlis, which one of those is actually in control of the situation? Hint, it isn't the Justice. The Justice is speaking with anger and spite, and he's filled with rage, and Scarpy is pretty in control. He knows exactly what he can do and what he can't do, and he's not really losing a whole lot of sleep. He knows that he has friends who can help him out, so he's kind of taking the situation pretty well, all things considered. And in fact, it's almost like he planned it. Almost. It's almost like he's planned this to be an inciting event, but that sort of sense that, again, he's perfectly content to just be himself, which is a Yeti. So in terms of planning things, do you think that he planned to have Kvothe show up there in the first place? I think so. I mean, the very first time that Kvothe showed up, do you think that he had anything to do with setting those particular dominoes in order for Kvothe to show up at the half-mast? I think he did. I think he knew who he was looking for. Let's put it this way. He also is the one who's responsible for putting Chronicler on the path of Quoth to find him at the Waystone. And of course, as we'll discover, Bast was the one who started leaking out stories in the first place. But Scarpy seems like he's looking for these sorts of things on his own. He's got plans for Quoth. I'd like to know if he has anything to do with any point in the story between now and whenever he sent Chronicler off to go and find Quoth, if that's in fact intentional. We hopefully will find out in the coming book, whenever the coming book is out. And so now that brings us to our interesting fact of the week, where we are going to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and explore our understanding of the world. This week it's Phoenix's turn, and if she doesn't interest me, well, there'll be raspberries for her. According to our Twitter poll, raspberries are a worse punishment. Our Twitter feed is weird. I don't get it. They like me better. Well, I mean, I get that. What? I like you better. I like you better. Aw, we're going to make the podcast audience vomit again. Hope you got your buckets. <laughs> Alrighty, so interesting facts. This one I didn't know until this morning. Although... I'm pretty sure that I probably have heard it, but let's see what you think. This morning I learned that sunflowers can help to clean up soil contamination from nuclear disasters. Environmental scientists call sunflowers a hyperaccumulator. They are plants that have the ability to take up high concentrations of toxic materials into their tissues. So all plants that have root systems can take things out of the soil like minerals and toxins. This includes things like zinc and copper and radioactive elements. Sunflowers, though, are particularly good at it. They're also known collectors of lead, and some have been bred to collect uranium. So not only is it cheaper to use plants like sunflowers to clean contaminated soil, 
which is also known as phytoremediation, than it is to have humans do it because we'd have to actually excavate all of the soil and clean out the contaminants and have people who are in special radioactive resistant gear and all sorts of stuff that just costs a ton of money. But it is cheaper to do it with plants and then to just dispose of the plants because they'll be radioactive. But it's also a lot prettier. I mean, what would you rather see? I like the image of Chernobyl filled with sunflowers. <laughs> Fukushima. Ah. Specifically, Fukushima, that area is full of sunflowers. Yeah. Or it has been. That's really cool. So, like, how do they dispose of the, the plants? It probably just goes into a radioactive landfill, but that's not information that was in ah. <laughs> this. It's supposed to be a nice feel-good story. I have no idea where they put the radioactive plants. Well, I won't eat sunflower seeds from them, but that is really cool. I like it. I was very interested this morning. I'm glad you liked my fact. I did, and I do. So now it's time for us to share our seven words from the books and from life. This week I've been tasked with finding seven words from our section of reading, and so I have chosen the following. This is not a statement, it is a question. What made my parents' song so different? And I chose that because it's a central question that has yet to be answered in the books, and it's something I think that is a mystery that Kvothe is still trying to unravel to this day. I really like that. And I think it's something that drives the narrative, the central question. So things like open-ended questions, driving narratives, there are a whole bunch of different things about open-ended questions that you hear, especially when talking about making a story or trying to get information from people. If you have a question that takes time or more than one word to answer, you can dig deeper, you can keep going, you can have more. Where if you ask a question that is a yes or no, especially, so we've both been customer service representatives, we've both had to try to pull information out of people who seem to want our help, but don't give us any information on how to help them. And if you ask a question to somebody who is intent on not talking, and that question could be answered with a yes or a no, it's a painful conversation. Yeah. I'm reminded of a statement that one of my old managers used to say, and it's something that's really stuck with me over the years. If you ask better questions, you'll get better answers. I think when we find answers unsatisfying to narrative questions and things like that, it's often because the questions themselves were never really going to give us the answers we needed. The questions themselves were not terribly interesting to begin with. Right. So every time you read a book and you're like, well, that seems pointless. That answer wasn't what I wanted. Well, it's because you weren't asking a question and the author wasn't asking a question that was going to go anywhere interesting. It's something you hear about mystery box storytelling, which is where you have mysteries driving narratives, questions and uncertainties that keep audiences hooked. 
mystery boxes fall apart if the characters are not interesting and aren't themselves driving the questions. But in this case, Quoth is most definitely driving that question. Yeah, this is something that is personal to him. This is not just some general question. This is something that he needs to make sense of his life. And I love that we don't get bogged down in that question, but that it is also not ignored throughout the very long two books that we have. And I think this is ultimately what drives him to research the Chandrian at the university, not for revenge, but to understand the trauma that he endured. It's like people who study sharks after losing someone in a shark attack. They want to understand sharks and how sharks work, why they do what they do, rather than take revenge. Against all sharks. Right. Because that's useful. Some people have really stupid revenge drives. But the desire to understand the trauma goes beyond the need for vengeance. Yeah, I think it is Quoth's desire to understand what happened to his life, to understand the tragedy that really pushes him in the direction that he ends up going. I really like your seven words this week. Cool. I'm glad. So you were tasked with finding seven words from life. What do you have? As we've made it abundantly clear, we have two very adorable yet annoying little podcasts. Now, granted, one of them is less annoying than the other. We'll let you, the audience, figure out which is which. But something that happens almost every morning, you get up, you get ready to go to work, you go downstairs, and you make sure that the cats are not starving. So my seven words are, they've been fed, their meows are lies. <laughs> they've been fed, their meows are lies. Yep. <laughs> yes, because inevitably... I will have the question of, well, did you guys get your treats? Did you guys get your food? And they're just sitting there meowing at me like I'm going to be the one giving them stuff. But I'm not the one that's supposed to be giving them the stuff. They already got it. Yep. And it's especially adorable when Leela, she just yells. She makes this noise that's like indignant. <laughs> she knows how to make her displeasure known. By sitting on your knee and purring at you loudly. Yep. <laughs> She's like, human, human, why aren't you getting the hint? Human, 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 feed me, human. She's been fed. And sometimes, because cats, we actually have to pick her up, go over 10 feet with her and stick her in front of her food. And then she just goes to town and eats it like nobody's business. Cats, man. What are you going to do? I love them. Me too. And with that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 30 through 32 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of class consciousness. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items.
one of those may wind up being a sticker based on episode four's talk of my library's summer reading program. Just one of those things. If you've been following us on Twitter, you might have found out about the amazing pun. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WaystonePod. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. How do you say it back to me? That's the funniest part. <laughs> You're like, I go, what? <laughs> you say it back. <laughs> Who's the weirdo now? <laughs> I think we both are. <laughs> I think you're right. Still you. <laughs>